Happy new now, one and all. Welcome back to Cafe Penumbra, your cyber cafe where we exchange ideas about current events and hot topics, storytelling, plus all the things. We do invite you to visit us and interact on our sister platform, the Cafe Penumbra Discord server. See the link in the show notes or at seraphimpenumbra.com. Today we'll be discussing the student loan debt relief situation and of course reviewing the top 10 movies of all time. But first, it's time for the breakdowns. Today's breakdown is, I guess you could call it an inspirational quote that I feel like I just cannot share enough, and it's by Rilke. Again and again, some people in the crowd wake up. They have no ground in the crowd and move according to much broader laws. They carry strange customs with them and demand room for bold gestures. The future speaks ruthlessly through them. From the news, the student loan debt forgiveness situation. A great number of those now suffering or struggling with student loan debt are in the predicament partly in association with the ridiculous amount of inflation that most wages still haven't caught up with. And more, they're written with interest rates that make the original amount borrowed balloon beyond what they could afford even if they were able to get jobs with their degrees if they were able to finish them. And in many cases, attending college at all would have been out of reach without the student loan program. And an insidious side of this has been that so-called for-profit institutions of higher learning have taken full advantage of this, maxing out what students can borrow and cranking out worthless degrees. The Biden administration attempted to alleviate this issue, citing the recent pandemic as cause, and was swiftly knocked down. And just a reminder, this was a campaign issue. This is not a new thing that's suddenly come up. And they are still pursuing it. But the thing that leaves me flummoxed is the opposition. A short stroll through Reddit turns up countless opinions of people who claim that student loan forgiveness is an unnecessary bailout that shouldn't be afforded to people in need. Part of the position is that they feel they would be subsidizing the program with their tax dollars which may be a valid point, but some others go a step further with statements like, I struggle to pay off my loans and so should everyone else. This kind of thinking isn't the solution. And let me remind those people of other uses of their tax dollars that go unprotested. But some of the pushback is literally from politicians and business owners who enjoyed millions of dollars of those PPP loans in order to keep their businesses open during the pandemic and whose debt was promptly forgiven. And these are not people in the same tax bracket by far who are struggling with the the weight of the student loan debt. These are people with six-figure incomes claiming that people significantly less advantaged shouldn't enjoy even a scaled-down version of the same relief. We were talking about $20,000 for some borrowers at max. And that just disgusts me. Not to mention how many times, even in recent history, the government has bailed out banks big oil, airlines, all of these multi-million dollar corporations. What a lot of people seem to not realize, I've seen countless testimonies uh, of people who've made all of their payments faithfully, and even after 10, 15, 20 years, they still owe significantly more than they borrowed in the first place. These people can't buy homes even if they've been successful. 
all of this sentiment is blatantly symptomatic of a basic kindergarten foul play. Choosing to deny others what you have is hoarding. Shame on you. And the callbacks. This is a newly named segment, although it was always part of the plan to keep the conversation alive, as I always say. And it's just an opportunity to review comments and feedback that have been generated by previous episodes. And so today, from the urban homesteading episode, I was at dinner uh, with friends a few weeks ago and the urban uh, homesteading episode came up and we were kind of spitballing really alternatives to meal prep or how we can simplify the business of living healthy. But it came up around this family homesteading YouTube channel that I follow. And part of their lives is that they homestead, they grow a lot of their own food, they have cows, chickens, goats, pigs. They do a lot of canning, um, food preservation, and their children are all homeschooled. And uh, because of that, they happen to have regular socials with other families who homeschool. So they'll do potlucks uh, and things like that. And I thought, you know, I tend to cook a lot at once and I freeze it. So I have a rotation of meals in the freezer. And I thought I could look up people in my immediate community and work out a meal swap. So I'm still cooking in bigger batches anyway. And instead of freezing um, the unused portion, I can swap it with with another family or um, another person, you know, and have like a meetup and maybe socialize. But this way, I'm multiplying the effectiveness of the time in the kitchen and, you know, sharing with with part of my community. And I realized that isn't going to work for a lot of people. But I just wanted to, like, use it as like a a foundation um, to to think about ways that you can minimize a a certain challenge or maximize the, the effectiveness. I mean, I know for myself, any time that I can have a day where I don't have to go into the kitchen, I feel like I have one time back from myself. Um, And of course, I realize that it isn't really related to that homesteading topic, but I feel like a common frustration that I hear about and from myself included is that you have to eat. And we were just brainstorming ways to maximize, as I said, the effectiveness. So a few days a week, I can get by without spending my extra time in the kitchen. The other callback was from the last episode, and um, it's not really a callback, but when I finished recording, I realized that I'd forgotten to say that Another major reason why I've never really tried to get on Drag Race, and I bring this up because during the the kind of rehearsal I mentioned that, you have to appear as your alter ego if you're on Drag Race, and I was 100% not willing to do that, and that was a big part of it. Because really early on, I I realized that most people who had met me in, in full dress or who met me in both modes didn't associate the two different people with me. So I thought to myself, okay, so for the best possible way for me to hide in plain sight was to go out without a stitch of uh, makeup and finery on. But if I were to uh, do drag race, I would lose that. That was an expense that I wasn't willing to pay. And when I talked about that in rehearsal, the reaction that it got made me think that people would want to know that. And um, for whatever reason, I omitted it from, from my answer to that question. And the other one was about in relationship to answering the question about why I don't wear wigs. And it's funny because sometimes I really feel like I, I, I wish I did wear wigs as part of my regular look because a lot of people use different kinds of surgical tape or adhesives to like tuck your face up. And of course, the only real convenient place to hide that is under the hairline of your wig. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> if you ever do happen to see me wearing a wig and I look like I've had work done, it's probably that I've just, um, my face is taped up under the wig. Okay, so the top 10 movies of all time in chronological order. I think they're in chronological order. Number one, Night of the Comet in 1984 was a science fiction comedy horror about a group of teens who survived the passing of a comet that has left the rest of the population in piles of clay colored biodust. I referenced this this movie during the um, the Bando Obsession episode because it was the first time that I'd seen a movie that was post-apocalyptic. And the idea of the world suddenly being unpopulated, um, but everything else stood in place, was something that kindled a passion for bandos or abandoned um, places for me. So you can start to see um, <laughs> the theme of my tastes in this uh, campy blend of comedy horror. And it was extremely cheesy in its 1980s splendor. Uniquely for this list, it's not really a movie that I would watch again and again, but one that stands out. Do you all remember Mystery Science Theater 3000? I, I don't think I ever watched an entire episode, but I always thought that it was a great premise to have a running irreverent commentary during a movie. And I don't know if Night of the Comet was ever one of the features, but if it wasn't, it could have been. And that is the best adjectival phrase you're going to get. I, I did really debate including this one because it wasn't really a great movie, except for me personally, like I said, it kind of ignited a little passion for abandoned places or bandos. Number two, also in 1984 on our list is 16 Candles. I mean, no one should be surprised by this. A coming of age teen angst story through the lens of John Hughes, a flavor he perfected in a number of his movies. How do you portray awkward teen years without being campy and while revealing their humanity? They weren't awkward teens. They were you. They were me. And it was brilliant. Sixteen Candles is about 16-year-old Samantha, whose birthday was overshadowed by the wedding of her older sister, and gives a perfect glimpse of how high school drama used to play out in the 80s and 90s. The crushes, the cliques, the chaos of hormones. It seems totally unrelatable today, but if you were alive when it came out, it's probably on your list too. I just wanted to add a note about this movie. I don't think that I had seen it since 1984, and I did end up re-watching it after I recorded the episode. And I was more than a little bit shocked by a lot of the problematic issues with the movie that if I picked up on when I first watched it, I missed. I am not making apologies, excuses, or explanations for these issues. Aside from the obvious racial slurs throughout the movie, the cringe factor was in full force when the Jake Ryan character practically and literally gave Ted the keys to basically date rape his girlfriend Caroline. I was a child when I watched this. And I don't think I even caught how gross that was. I will say, however, intentionally or unintentionally, it did capture an accurate representation of what was okay at the time, which I can't say, like I said, was intentional. And I haven't done any research to see what he may, this is John Hughes, what he may have said in response to these issues. But really, this was a time when Hollywood clearly didn't care about women, racism, or homophobia. And 
just made blatant jokes about it. And this movie depicts that. I have to take back its status, however, as a top 10 movie for this list, because despite loving Molly Ringwald and her performances in these movies, I'm thinking also about The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink, I can't favorite anything that's just so wrong. I think if it was obvious that it was tongue-in-cheek, but I can just imagine being an Asian or a gay or um, female person and how uncomfortable it would be to see these portrayals unironically. When I, the age that I was when I saw this, I don't think that any of it registered except for the anti-Asian slurs. And sadly, it was so normalized at the time that I overlooked it. And I apologize for that. I apologize for mentioning the movie before I rewatched it. It kind of makes me want to rewatch The Breakfast Club or Pretty in Pink, but I'm almost afraid to. The thing that I remembered about these movies and the reason why I picked it to be on the list were the intensely relatable characters, mainly Molly Ringwald's. And I love stories that champion the underdog, which is also why I love a lot of Tim Burton's work, for example, for which he has also come under uh, scrutiny. And for my part, Again, I apologize. I made a mistake and I will be more careful. For the sake of the conversation, I'm leaving the discussion in. But in place of 16 Candles, I'm going to go ahead and add Death Becomes Her back in. I originally removed this movie because when I was preparing to record the episode, I was reminded of Postcards from the Edge, which I would have been remiss if I wasn't, um, if I didn't mention it. Death Becomes Her was a 1992 dark comedy that shows a satirical view of Hollywood darling Madeline Ashton, played by Meryl Streep, with Goldie Hawn as her rival and Bruce Willis, a washed up plastic surgeon who resorts to preparing the dead for their final rest. The plot thickens when a mysterious Liesel, played by Isabella Rossellini, sells Ashton a potion that reverses the effects of aging and provides eternal youth, wasted on the vapid narcissist of the Hollywood jet set. The special effects were very well done for the time, and the result was a hilarious movie that warns against the foibles of thinking too much of oneself. I am embarrassed by the number of times I rewatched this movie, but in my defense, it was probably playing on cable, so I had easy access to it. It wasn't like I kept going out to the blockbuster to rent the same movie over and over again. Whatever. Number three. I'm not sure what I expected, but this is as equally getting to know what the inside of my head looks like as it is uh, top 10 movies. So uh, Beetlejuice from 1988. And I didn't even realize this until writing an essay for school recently. Beetlejuice is still to this day my most watched movie of all time. It's not my favorite movie, which is odd. But again, if I saw it was playing somewhere, I would probably watch it again. And it's partly the aesthetic. Um, It's Tim Burton, who, of course, is another hero of mine. It just resonates with me. And the cast, of course, uh, you had Michael Keaton, Gina Davis, Catherine O'Hara, Winona Ryder, Alec Baldwin. This uh, spooky comedy tells the story of the Maitlands who accidentally drown in the river of the sleepy hamlet where they remain haunting their own house, which takes a comedic turn when the house is sold to the Dietzes. The movie's portrayal of the waiting room in purgatory is probably my favorite part, and it reminds me that my hell probably would be a waiting room exactly like that. The special effects were delicious, they were campy, but I like that when I'm watching anything from Tim Burton. I know that no matter how many ways they brainstorm to do something challenging or amazing, his commitment to the aesthetic and to practical effects is something that wins me over every time. 
I love the miniature town in the attic. I love the serious themes and stakes juxtaposed with the campy slapstick that lightens it up. There's probably a word for it, but spooky comedies is just what I call it. I love this. And again, every single time I watch it, I'm reminded that, yep, this is one of the best movies ever made. And just on that, most of the movies that we're discussing here are really films, while there are uh, a few exceptions. In my mind, a movie is usually made for mass consumption, to make money. And in most cases, that is pretty straightforward. But I also think that sometimes a film goes undercover in a way as a movie and vice versa. For the sake of transparency, I compiled the list with a more general definition of movie. And once I had a chance to think about it, I realized that I had more of a mix of movies and films. Um, And as a true Pisces, this is kind of a disclaimer that I'm using (laughs) movie to refer to motion pictures um, for this podcast. Number four, Postcards from the Edge. This 1990 comedy drama by Carrie Fisher was a deliciously written semi-autobiographical tale of an actress recovering from addiction while trying to get her life together after a recent stint in rehab and focuses on the volatile relationship between her and her alcoholic mother, a faded Hollywood star. Postcards ties with Beetlejuice for the most rewatched movies on my list. And seeing Meryl Streep in a comedic lead was delicious. It's not something that she had done a lot of uh, until then. And really a a star-studded ensemble with Shirley MacLaine as the mother, Dennis Quaid, Gene Hackman, Richard Dreyfuss, Rob Reiner, Annette Bening, Conrad Bain. I wonder if part of why this was so good, besides Meryl Streep's delivery and Carrie Fisher's brilliance, is that in 1990, reality TV wasn't really a thing. So it was kind of, especially knowing it was based on Fisher's relationship with her mother, actress Debbie Reynolds, may they both rest in power, was that as an audience, we weren't used to seeing this behind closed doors lives of the Hollywood elite. In 1993, The Nightmare Before Christmas, I mean, nobody could be surprised that this is on the list. Again, Tim Burton showed us how his dark and gloomy aesthetic perfectly paired with Christmas, which I read a few different places that part of what inspired it was when you go like into even a grocery store before Halloween, you can always see the candy, of course, and the the costume goodies. But also you start to see the Thanksgiving stuff coming out and the Christmas, you know, the tinsel and all that holiday bedazzlement that's ready to burst out and tantalize shoppers in a way that's, I find, distasteful. But a film that features both simultaneously, Halloween and Christmas, was a stroke of genius. And of course, you see the pattern. It's dark and it's stop motion. So it's for me. And on that, we're watching a really elaborate puppet show, really. But from the very first frame, we easily forget that it's a puppet. It's real. It just becomes real and you never doubt it. And I think that is magic. The Sixth Sense in 1999 makes the list because, again, the way that the storytelling was done was so much more real than we're used to seeing in movies. I feel like it's something that we've seen a lot since, but hadn't seen a lot before. So this was a psychological thriller involving a child psychologist paired with a child who claims to see dead people who don't know that they're dead. Kind of a blatant metaphor, however apt. This movie, unusually sad for my list, is perhaps best remembered for the surprise twist ending, which was just so very well done. I was not one of the people who saw it coming, but when I saw the reveal, my reaction was, I'm watching this again immediately, which is a very unusual reaction for me. 
The Cell is another psychological thriller from 2000 that tells the story of a child psychologist who utilizes an experimental virtual reality tool to access the subconscious mind of a serial killer who is in a coma in order to find the location of his most recent victim. For me, the way that they depicted the narrative of the interacting with the subconscious mind was so well done that I'm surprised it wasn't better received. I thought the cast was great. I love Vince Vaughn and Vincent D'Onofrio and, of course, Jennifer Lopez. I will say it was a little bit surprising to see her in this. It was very dark subject matter, but she was great in it. Some of the scenes were artfully breathtaking, like a cross between high art and a dark and moody music video. And, of course, the costumes were legendary. Not a movie that I've seen a bunch. It was really scary and graphic in some places, but delicious nonetheless. Hedwig and the Angry Inch in 2001. This is another movie that I'm a little embarrassed by the number of times that I've watched it. In fact, I recall living in our little flat in Bed-Stuy. One of our friends used to roll their eyes every time I watched it. And, you know, it was kind of promoted as the Rocky Horror update, and that really landed for me. We would... um sing along to all the songs and recite all the lines and practically had our own audience participation. I've shared a couple of times how that movie just kind of saved me in a way. So obviously it's on the list. But when you think about it, this trans rock star spending time in a trailer park and touring around performing, maybe it's a super niche demographic, but Hedwig definitely made the cut for me. All right. (laughs) Synecdoche, New York in 2008. This is the one where I predicted I would start to lose a lot of people. And I'm guessing it was fairly obscure, but also very much more on the filmy side, but still a movie, in my opinion. If you missed it, I absolutely recommend it. Just know you will probably have to watch it a few times to get it. And I'm not even saying that I get it. The main character wins an award with which he decides to create his most brutally truthful work, and he undertakes constructing the world of his creation in a warehouse in Manhattan's theater district. The show continues to grow more and more complex, at times obliterating the lines between life and art. Panned for being indulgent, I completely disagreed. I love Philip Seymour Hoffman, may he rest in power, and I felt like I could easily see myself in the characters, which I think is intentional, but was, it was almost uncomfortable at times. To call it layered would be a complete understatement, and I can't imagine what it must have been like to work on that film, movie. They must have had an equally elaborate production schedule with very specific naming conventions because it's, it's just so homo, I guess. I, I thought this was perhaps Philip Seymour Hoffman's best work, and I, I would definitely watch this movie again and again. It is a long movie, um, but so good. In 2009, Coraline was a dark fantasy horror based on Neil Gaiman's book by the same name and tells the story of the very relatable Coraline, a little girl left to her own devices who discovers a parallel universe while exploring her creepy new house. So this is me showing my geek, like stop motion, check, but not just stop motion. There were places when it absolutely would have been easier to utilize the readily available CGI to achieve some of the effects. And comparable to Tim Burton, this team of filmmakers worked so hard to make this movie absolutely perfect. It was a little scarier without the goofy awkwardness that comedy would have lightened up, but it simply didn't fit into the recipe. 
I also love this theme that we've seen repeated a number of times where the living are depicted in, in drab, gloomy, less saturated expressions of color, while the dead seem to be far more living and animated than the living, which is almost a little bit cliche, except a point that apparently needs to be raised so often. An honorable mention in 1997, this is out of order, as good as it gets, this um, this romantic comedy with a lot of heart effortlessly weaves together the lives of a single mother struggling to make ends meet for her sickly child, a douchebag novelist with OCD, and a gay artist. Again, this is one of those ensemble casts with Helen Hunt, Greg Kinnear, Jack Nicholson, Cuba Gooding Jr., Skeet Ulrich, Shirley Knight, Maya Rudolph. Who wasn't in this? For me, my mother suffered with OCD and I'm a queer artist. And this unlikely crossroads for these characters was artfully presented. And even the characters that I didn't like, I ended up rooting for them by the end. I think there's a tremendous value in storytelling that presents characters that you can relate to and maybe find yourself a little surprised by having your own change of heart. And are you kidding me with the writing? Also, I think when you look at the cast of a movie, and it isn't a primary consideration for me, but when I look at the cast of certain movies, I can sometimes draw the conclusion, these people didn't choose to make this movie because they had to, but because they thought it was good. Which isn't to say, I mean, there are plenty of star-studded movies that are worth missing, but I guess it also depends on who you like. And to an extent, this list represents some of that for me. I do want to mention also that I'm not here trying to say that these movies are better than other movies or that they're the best movies. They're just movies that for some reason or other either really resonated with me or impacted me or inspired me. And in a way, I'm grateful for if that makes sense. And I sure know that there are plenty of hard-hitting topics, some that we've covered and some that we probably won't. But sometimes I just want to have a conversation that's a little bit of a respite from all that out there. I realize, of course, I can't ignore it, but sometimes, and especially lately, and believe me, I know this comes from a place of privilege. I never want to be unaware of that. And at the same time, sometimes I need to take a break and just connect with people. So that's that. I would love to hear from you what you thought about the movies that we talked about. I'm sure that I've left some off the list. Obviously, I loved Indiana Jones and Star Wars and Back to the Future and Fight Club and Natural Born Killers and Torch Song Trilogy and Shawshank Redemption and Inception and E.T. and loads of others. But I kind of developed a criteria and these were just my top 10 favorites. No big deal. On the next episode, we'll be discussing dream phenomena. Thanks again so much for joining me today. Bonsoir. Of course, you can join the conversation as well on the socials, in the Discord server, and on the new Cafe Penumbra subreddit. As always, please keep the conversation alive. And remember, it's only a conversation when ideas are exchanged. If you're interested in supporting this broadcast, you can always buy me a coffee or visit our retail shop. Thank you for stopping by Cafe Penumbra. I'm your host, Seraphim Penumbra, wishing you a jolly new now. Today's program has been brought to you in part by the letter 7 and the number blue. Cafe Penumbra is produced by PLC Media Lab. <laughs>